This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. David built a house for God as an expression of his acknowledgement that everything he has in his position comes from God and that God is to be glorified among the nations. But what about us? Are we supposed to build a big edifice for God? Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and you're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Welcome to the program. Today's message is the final in this series on pursuing Jesus. Really something we should be striving for every day. Pastor Jeff is about to look at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 2, and it's a passage that's titled Gifts for the Building of the Temple. It's a time when King David was pursuing God with all his might and gave all he had to build a temple to honor God. Are we meant to do the same? Let's find out as we join Pastor Jeff together as he unpacks these passages. Follow along with me, if you would, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. I'm going to start with verse 2. I'm going to give you a moment to get there. And at the top of my outline here, I've written the words, simplify, simplify. And it's because the the topic is so important as we continue on this series of pursuing Jesus that I don't wanna make, I wanna make sure it doesn't get lost in some kind of profundity or some kind of abstract thought. I really wanna encourage you to lean in here. This is probably one of the most important messages uh, concerning the whole idea of pursuing Jesus. And I often return to this narrative in 1 Chronicles 29, when I am a little unsure of where I am in my life, what I'm doing with my life. It's one of the most convicting passages anywhere in the Old Testament because King David does something in this story that is unlike anything any king before him has done or will do in the future. It's unparalleled in any Old Testament narrative. We come to 1 Chronicles 29 and David is actually in a season in his life where his primary pursuit is intimacy with God. That's what David wants more than anything else. He's a little older now. He's witnessed the futility of his other passions and pursuits. If you know the, the life story of David, he's made significant mistakes, committed significant sins. And yet he's been on the receiving end of the unparalleled mercy and grace of God. And as a result of all these things, as he gets older, the light comes on for David. And he starts to pursue God above and beyond all other things. Now, he has other passions, but nothing as great as his passion for God. He wants to know God, experience God, commune with God. He chases after other things, but not with the same passion and determination that he chases after and pursues God. David is in a time and a season in his life when he is chasing hard after the heart of God. He wants to know what God truly cares about. 
What makes God smile? In the same way I wanted to know what Robin cares about and what makes her smile. And here's what he discovered. Somewhere along the journey of his life, he began to realize that what makes God smile is when we glorify God with our lives. Now, because that's been David's life, David has fallen deeply in love with God and he wants to glorify God in the latter years of his life. And he wants to do so, so that all nations will know that the God in Israel is the God who delivers. And so David decides he wants to build a house for God. He's gonna build a house of worship and prayer, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, a testimony to the world that the God of Israel is a loving, merciful, gracious God. Now, we come to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, and in verse one and two, as David sets out to build his house, we're told that first thing he does is he dedicates all the temple wealth to build a house for God. After he does that, though, he realizes something, and we pick it up in the next verse, verse two and three. He says, in my devotion to the temple of my God, I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I've provided for this holy temple. So like, here's what David's doing. He gives the temple treasury to the building of the house of God. And then it dawns on him, wait a minute. I've really done nothing here. I've just given what's already in the temple treasury. I've given, I've given nothing of myself. There's no cost to me to build this glorious house for God. Now, we get a little clue about David's uh, attitude here in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 18, when a destructive plague overwhelms Israel. It's a pandemic of disobedience and repentance I wish we could go into detail here, but to stay on course, I'll simply say that there is a pandemic that came upon the people of Israel designed for them to repent in order that something worse, far worse may not happen to them. And you see this a lot in the Bible where God allows a plague in hopes of averting a greater disaster, far worse than the physical pain. But God in his kindness and generosity to his people sees the pain this plague is exacting and he stands up and he, in the way that God would and he raises his hand in the air and he says, this far, no farther. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but God said enough is enough and the plague ceases. When that happens, David ascends to build an altar to God to atone for his personal sin because he's involved in this and as an expression of gratitude for God's mercy. So he's on his way up the hill. This is in again, 2 Samuel chapter 24. He's gonna build an altar to God on the threshing floor of Arunah, the Jebusite. Now, Arunah is a very wealthy man and he greatly respects the king. He really likes King David. So he says, hey, if you're gonna go out and build this altar, let me pay for everything. I'm a wealthy man. I'll give you all the money to build the altar. And David says, no, whoa, I mean, thank you, but no way, I can't do that. And he says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. You see what he's saying? In verse one and two, David gives the temple wealth, but that's like me uh, issuing a decree that we're gonna give a bunch of money from one and all church to God's pantry. Well, that hasn't cost me personally anything. It's just me transferring funds from one's budget, funds from one budget to another. David says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gives up a considerable portion of his own personal wealth. It's like he goes to his personal bank account and empties it out. Look what happens in verse six. Then the leaders of the families, the officers of the tribes of Israel, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds 
and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. Now I've underlined all uh, the descriptions of the type of people who have given, and you will notice these are the leaders of Israel. So speed of the leader, speed of the team. The ultimate leader in King David gives sacrificially and generously, and that catalyzes a movement. It sparks an attitude in the other leaders of the nation of Israel. And they all come together and they all give their very best. And then the Bible tells us everybody just gets happy. There's this internal joy. Verse nine, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Now look at verse 10 and let's pick up the story. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly saying, praise be to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatest and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Verse 12, wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give thanks and praise your glorious name. And then look carefully at verse 14. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, we've only returned to you what is yours anyway. Why is it then that we should be praised? You are the giver of all good gifts. It is you, God, who should be glorified and praised. Now, I know a little bit about what this is like. I think I shared with you earlier that I had a birthday around the end of August, and I got one of the best gifts ever from my kids, not because of the gift itself. It was a brand new pair of golf shoes, and man, they are really nice. But what made it so special is I think this is the first year where my kids didn't ask me for money to buy me a birthday present. So they sacrifice their own money, neither of which have a lot of money, neither of whom have a lot of money, but they sacrificed. They were incredibly generous because I think they were passionately pursuing their dad. Verse 15, he says, we are foreigners and strangers in your sight as we're all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. So I've made notes in my margin, wow, after verse 14, and wow again after verse 15. Because David is saying, we've only returned to you what is yours. Now let's pause just for a moment so we can use culture again, as we have in the past weeks, to pack up a powerful punch in this passage. Can I ask you, do you believe presently that our politicians are telling us the truth? Okay. Here's how you measure that. I try to listen, and this is my method. I try to listen to what they're saying, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. I try to listen to what they say, and then I try to watch and see what they do. And if what they say doesn't match up with what they do, then the conclusion I make is this. They don't really believe what it is they're saying. Now, can I ask you something? Do you really believe that everything you have comes from God? If you say yes, I'm going to listen to what you say. And then if I could follow you around and see what you do, the real question is, would your words match your actions? And if they don't, then that shows me that you really don't believe what you're saying. 
Jesus told us time and time again, and he talked more about this issue in the New Testament than any other issue, that when God gets your heart, really gets your heart, your greatest joy comes as a result of giving yourself to God and his purposes in the world. It's not about an obligation. It's not about someone guilting you into that. It's a byproduct. This kind of living of extreme generosity does not make you a Christian. It is proof that you are a Christian. It's proof of life. When the click happens in your life, when you've pursued God with great passion and you've become intimate with God and your heart has been transformed, your relationship, and this is what David is showing us, your relationship to your stuff changes drastically. Look at verse 17. He says, I know my God that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. I love the Hebrew word for integrity. It's, it's really not closely related to the Greek word. It's quite unique because the Hebrew word for integrity actually means pragmatic straightness. Uh, a good example is if you're a carpenter and you're working with your buddy in the wood shop and your buddy says, hey, that looks level to me. And he says, grab the level, we'll see if it's level. That's what this word means. This word means, okay, you're grateful to God. You say you're grateful to God and you acknowledge that everything comes from him. Let me have the level. What's the level? The level is, do I see you living a life that portrays to the external world what you say you believe internally, that all of your stuff belongs ultimately to God and that you have positioned your life in such a way as to use your stuff primarily for the glory of God. In short, God gets the very best of your stuff. Look at verse 20. Then David said to the whole assembly, praise the Lord your God. So they all praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. They bowed down, prostrating themselves before the Lord and the king. Now what's interesting here, the Hebrew word for worship is also a very unique word. It comes from the idea of worth. So you tend to worship that which you give ultimate worth to. You serve and obey and pursue worship that thing or that entity that you give the ultimate worth to. That is the place that gets the best of you and your resources. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So that brings us back now to the ultimate question. As we pursue Jesus, there has to come a time in our life when we ought to be mature enough to ask ourselves what or who gets the very best of you. Not, not the most of you. Be careful that you distinguish between those two ideas. We all have to work. Gotta make a living. We're spending time with a family. We've got recreation. Not the most time, not the most money, but the most precious time and the most precious money. What or who gets that from you? Now, let me add some real honesty to simplicity. I've been a miserable failure at this type of message for most of my life, and it's because I've been working on a false assumption. I have assumed that if I present all the really cool things that we're doing at One and All Church, then everyone will dive in, get on board, and serve and give their time, and we'll become people of generosity, great generosity, staggering generosity. So I've tried to show you how benevolent we are, how we're trying to reach the community, help those who are less fortunate in our house to home ministry, in God's pantry. I've tried to show you how many are 
sacrificing their time and their talents and their resources to build a city on a hill that cannot be hidden over in Pomona called God's Pantry. So that the first place people in our valley think about when they have a need is God's Pantry. I've talked to you about Northern India and how we're trying to send these pastors who are willing to sacrifice their lives to go up on the Northern regions to reach the last unreached people groups on planet earth. I've talked about what we're trying to do in Mexico and Zimbabwe and Rwanda, primarily, however, right here in our own backyard. And then I've also tried to present us with the reality of God's blessings and where most Americans actually spend their money. And I, I thought, well, if I can do that, perhaps I can help people wake up to the reality of what they're truly pursuing. It is true that I've given you those stats that we are 6%, we are 6 of the world's population in the United States of America, and yet we consume almost half of the world's resources. We're the rich folks that the Bible talks about. And while 1 billion people live on a dollar a day and 800 million people will not eat today, 300 million of those will be children, experts tell us that we could feed and nourish the entire world for around $20 billion a day. And I read recently that actually it's been more than recently, probably about 10 years ago, that that's what Americans spend on ice cream in any one given year. So if we just stopped eating ice cream, we're a blessed nation. But this kind of information has not worked in the past. And every time I've delivered these kind of messages, then those who are giving give more and those who are not giving continue not to give. Let me give you just a little bit example here. There, were, uh, there are thousands of people that attend one and all, and this is not exact numbers, but it's pretty close. These are not exact numbers. Let's say we have 10,000 givers. Then 20% of the people at one and all give significantly. So that would be 2,000. They give regularly and they've decided in their own hearts that the tithe is the best way to go. So they actually give 10% of their income. They give the first fruits principle that is repeated in the New Testament. 50% of that 10,000, 5,000, would give less than $1,000 a year to the ministry, to what we're trying to accomplish here in this valley. Now you think about that. That means if you do the tithe scenario, that means 50% of our people are living below the poverty line. 50% give less than $1,000 a year. And 30% give so very little that it's just hard to track. So I look at that and I think, wow, of all the messages and all the endeavors and all the good work that is happening, we still have 20% of the congregation, the core people giving and serving whose hearts have been transformed. And I, I often ask myself as a pastor, and this is the beauty of getting older. The beauty of getting older, you stop saying things that will make people feel good all the time. You just say, man, I gotta tell you, this is the truth of the matter, this is it. And I've done a little research, actually someone else did the research, trying to discover why the percentages are so low in, a mega, in the mega churches in our country. And they came up with six reasons why people just refuse or do not give, even though they may want to. Number one, it's all mine anyway. The attitude is, this is mine. I can do with it as I please. Of course, that's in direct contradiction with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The second reason people say, well, I give elsewhere. And the author of the article says, this is the person who counts his giving to secular causes, his time 
or paying his children's Christian school tuition as his tithe. So this is a person that looks for other ways to define giving to the expansion of the kingdom of God. Third, a person will say tithing is not a New Testament principle. I actually agree with that. Shocker. But I also know that when Jesus fulfilled the law, he didn't revise spirituality downward. Grace requires much more than the law ever could. That's why Zacchaeus gave back four times. Remember when Jesus met him? Not two times, according to the Mosaic law. He gave back four times. Why would he do that? Well, he was thinking to himself, man, I've been a bad guy. I better double this because I'm still involved in work salvation. And maybe if I double up, then I'll be accepted into the kingdom of God. No, not at all. The reason Zacchaeus has embraced Christ is he's realized that someone like him could be forgiven and completely restored because one is saved by grace through faith, not through the works of the law. So in his mind, grace goes far beyond the law, so should he. And that's why we've said every time we've encountered Zacchaeus' story that greed surrenders to generosity at the point of conversion. It's a natural byproduct because you've been given so much, in return, you live with that attitude in your everyday life. Four, some will say, I will tithe when I can afford it. And yet research shows that contrary to what we might assume, the more money a person makes, the less percentage they give away. So if you wait to give until you can afford to, you probably never will. Five, people will say, I'm afraid. These are people who honestly fear what might happen to them and their family if they give. And I always take you back to Malachi 3, where God says, and I don't know of any other place in scripture where God says this. He says, test me in this. Test me, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So God says, and again, the meaning of the language there is the gauntlet, to throw down the gauntlet and say, come on, you want me? You want to go it? At this with me, you can either go at your resources and your wealth with me or without me. But I challenge you to test me in this. Be faithful to what I'm asking you to do and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you. Six, and finally, I give God my time in service. Now I hear this a lot. Someone says, well, I don't give money, but I give my time. Well, that tells me that God gets your time, but your money's off limits, which tells me that means your money is your real God. Do you understand how that attitude is directly connected to Jesus' words in Matthew 6 when he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So you either submit your money to God or you submit God to your money. One or the other, you cannot serve both. But there's another question that comes out of 1 Chronicles 29. David built a house for God as an expression of his acknowledgement that everything he has in his position comes from God and that God is to be glorified among the nations. But what about us? Are we supposed to build a big edifice for God? No, that's not our calling. That's very clear in the New Testament. What have we been called to do? What are you and I supposed to do? With what have we been charged? How are we supposed to invest God's resources? You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff.
You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.